The book of Psalms, Psalm 105. Psalm 105. For New Year's Day this year, we did something that we haven't done before. We went on a New Year's Day hike. Um, hadn't done that before. It was a new, new idea. I don't know if it'll be a tradition, but it, we did it this year. And as we left, I noticed one of my sons had brought a compass. He brought a compass. I think he was secretly hoping that somehow we would find ourselves in some uncharted territory that would be much more exciting than the well-worn path. Uh, he's hoping that we would find ourselves suddenly in a, a new area, some place that perhaps no one had been before, we maybe had never been before, and that compass might come in heading. We could use the compass to mark our direction. And of course, that's true. Anytime you're in a, in a new area, a new territory where there's not history for you personally, having a compass, having a heading is crucial so that you know where you are going, so that you don't get lost. Well, our church, as I announced last week, entered something of what we might call new territory. Uh, we have been the recipients of an unarguable miracle. If you weren't here last week, I'm sure you've gotten word, but over the course of a month, the Lord provided a gift for our building fund of three and a half million dollars. Uh, obviously, nothing we had anticipated. I was trying to explain to one of my sons even this morning how, how much money that is compared to, you know, other amounts that maybe you might be aware of. We had watched It's a Wonderful Life <laughs> recently, and, and the amount of money that he loses, and we were trying to compare how much he gets at the end and how much that is compared to what we received as a church, and ten times, a hundred times, more than a hundred times, you're trying to explain the kind of gift that the Lord has, has given to us, obviously nothing that we had anticipated. And in one sense, it introduces us into kind of new territory, the prospect of buying land, of, of buying or building a building, the prospect of a permanent location, and all of the opportunities and responsibilities that come with that new season. And it seemed to me that since this is uncharted territory for us, we ought not to be presumptuous about being able to navigate this in a godly way. We ought to be considering what, what is our compass direction? What is our heading, as it were, in this new and uncharted territory? We don't want to assume that just because God has led us through the territory so far in the life of our church that we, we got it covered, we can handle this new opportunity or season without any trouble. We, we want to have a heading and I believe that as in every new situation in the life of a church, whether it's a new kind of suffering, a new kind of difficulty, a decision, growth in the church, we must turn to God's Word to give us our heading. We can't assume that our natural strategic ability or our intellect or even our ability together to think through things is the right place to turn. We need to turn to God's Word and let it guide us in this new territory. So in order to do that, I'm going to look at various parts of Psalm 105 this morning. We won't cover the whole psalm, but I think it gives us a, a very helpful summary of an important point about a heading that we ought to have in this new season, responding to the miraculous mercy of the Lord to us. So let's begin reading the first few verses, and then we'll, we'll kind of jump around through the psalm throughout the message. Psalm 105, verse 1. 
The psalmist writes, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. <coughs> sing to Him, excuse me, sing praises to Him. Tell of all His wondrous work. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles and the judgments that He uttered. O offspring of Abraham, His servant, children of Jacob, His chosen one. Look down now to the end of the psalm in verse 43. So He brought His people out with joy, His chosen ones with singing, and He gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil that they might keep His statutes and observe His laws. Praise the Lord. Lord, bless the preaching and the obeying of Your Word. Well, Psalm 105 serves as a, a brief summary of Israel's history. It's, it's framed as a celebration of God's grace toward them as a people. It functions as a reminder to give Him glory for the mighty works He had done throughout their history. And it summarizes a number of those key works throughout the psalm. The first stanza is an exhortation to give thanks to the Lord, to sing to Him because of His mighty deeds. And then the subsequent paragraphs celebrate a number of those mighty deeds leading up to the conclusion where the reader is reminded that the purpose of God's choosing and saving them the purpose of his mighty acts on their behalf was that they would follow his commandments. And then the writer repeats again in the last phrase that they are to praise the Lord. This is similar to many psalms, similar theme, where the mighty acts of the Lord are to compel a magnifying of his glory. And if I could summarize a, a theme of Scripture that I think is represented in this psalm as well, the mighty acts of God have a purpose. They have a goal. They're supposed to get something done among the people of God. They're supposed to cause them to magnify His glory, to, to worship Him, to praise Him, to live for His glory. They're, they're to, to accomplish this in the hearts of those who have been witnesses of His mighty acts on their behalf, and we are no exception. Obviously, first and foremost, the mighty act of our ultimate salvation and all of God's evidences of grace throughout our journey until we see Him should compel us to magnify the Lord. His actions are not arbitrary. They're not aimless. They have a, a purpose, a goal. And, and in our day and age where you might say entitlement or self-centeredness or presumption is substantial and regular, it's important for the church to recognize God gives with a goal in mind. Not that we can repay Him because we cannot repay Him, but it has the aim that his people would bear witness to his mighty works by magnifying his glory. We see the same progress or progression in the New Testament when Paul says in Romans 12 that in view of God's mercy, we ought to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Peter reminds his readers that God has chosen us to be his own possession, a treasured temple on earth meant to declare the praises of him who called us. The grace of God toward us in its ultimate expression in salvation and in every other evidence of grace is meant to direct us to live for his glory. 
to fulfill what the Westminster Catechism describes as the chief end of man, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. If there is one compass point that I believe we ought surely to follow in this new territory of land and building and the new season of a permanent location that we're anticipating, if there's one compass point that we ought to bear in mind, lest we get lost in this new territory, it is this, that the mighty works of the Lord, even this latest mighty work that He has done on our behalf, should compel us to magnify His glory. His glory should be the, the compass point, the heading that should direct us in this new season. We can't lose sight of it because it is possible, even in response to God's abundant generosity, to lose sight of the glory of the giver. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to miss our way. We want to keep sight of that heading. Now, I'd like to give four practical indicators this morning of what it means in this season, which will be a lengthy season for us. We are, in all likelihood, not going to snap our fingers and see a building pop out of the ground or, or abruptly find something that is just exactly perfect with no modifications for our church. No, it's, it's going to be a lengthy season, so I'm not anticipating some quick, you know, it's over and done with quickly. And therefore, I think we need this heading to kind of guide us into this next season in the life of the church. And I think these indicators are like signposts that will tell us, yes, you are keeping your eye, your heading on the glory of the Lord. We ought to look for these things to reassure us that we are living for God's glory in this new territory into which He has brought us. Signpost number one, that we are living to magnify His glory in light of His mercy towards us. We ought to first see gratefulness for His mercy. Gratefulness for His mercy. That is a signpost that indicates to a church or a Christian that they are living for God's glory when gratefulness for His mercy wells out of their heart. Look at the, the very first verse of this psalm. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. The psalmist goes on to describe a highlight reel of the reason for that thankfulness. He talks in verse 8 about he, he chose Abraham. He gave him a covenant a promise that they would inherit the land of Canaan. In verse 12, he points out that though they were few and unimpressive, he watched over them and gave them protection. In verse 16 and following, he tells the story of Joseph. In verse 26, of Moses and the Exodus, all reasons why God's people should look back and having seen the mighty acts of God in mercy toward them, they should give thanks to the Lord. He, he encourages God's people to always look backward and remember, apart from God's mercy, we would not be where we are. We wouldn't be close to being where we are. And those mighty acts, we can extend and consider their culmination in the person of Christ. Paul says in Romans that the promise to Abraham that his offspring would be a blessing to the world is ultimately fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, that Jesus is the offspring that would be the blessing to the nations that God promised to Abraham. Jesus is like an even better Joseph, who though he was rejected by his brothers, actually becomes the provision in the midst of their need. He is like a better Moses, who delivers us from that captivity, not of Egypt, but of slavery to sin, and brings them across the great divide into the promised land. So these stories ought to mean for us something even more as we consider their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we also ought to give thanks to the Lord. 
Now, sadly, the Old Testament is littered with examples of God's people forgetting the Lord rather than remembering Him in gratefulness. For many years in the history of Israel, they did not even celebrate their once-a-year feast of the Passover commemorating His deliverance from Egypt. It had to be renewed at one point in their history. They forgot it for year after year after year. So it is possible having been the recipients of God's mighty acts, to forget those acts and to be presumptuous and take them for granted rather than grateful. We must not follow this horrific example. It is written down for us as a warning that the recipients of God's mercy ought to give thanks for His mercy. They do not act as if that mercy is assumed or deserved. No, they are constantly and freshly surprised at the mercy of God toward them. And brothers and sisters, we ought to be constantly surprised at the mercy of God toward us. First and foremost, in Christ. But every lesser blessing, including this most recent one, there ought to be an ongoing guardianship of the surprise of mercy. That's a signpost for the soul. Where the surprise of mercy seems less surprising, less astonishing, it's a good sign that we've lost our heading towards the glory of God, and we have started to look more towards the presumption and self-centeredness that is often present in our sinful hearts. Gratefulness for mercy is a signpost that we are headed towards the glory of God. We are, if you notice in verse, uh, let's see, Notice in verse 1 again that this thankfulness is not to be limited to our private worship or even our corporate worship. We're to make known His deeds among the people. So this is to be part of our witness that we give thanks to the Lord. I think this gratefulness will also compel us to be generous as a church toward other churches and other needs so that we are not investing all of God's resources only into our own benefit here locally. We are looking for ways to serve other other aspects of God's kingdom around the world. Great Gratefulness accomplishes a thousand good things in the people of God. Witness and generosity flow out of gratefulness. Contentment flows out of gratefulness. Joy flows out of gratefulness. And I've I've spoken on this a couple of times recently, so I won't elaborate it. But you get the point that if we are headed towards God's glory, a grateful church is one of the marks that we are headed towards God's glory and not our own. Gratefulness. Gratefulness for His mercy ought to be the mark, I think, of this new season in the life of our church. As we enter a new territory, so to speak, let's be looking for this signpost, for this landmark, so that we, are know, we know we are still living for God's glory and not to set up a monument to our own name. Gratefulness for His mercy. Second category or signpost that I think we need to bear in mind to keep our eyes fixed on God's glory is faith in His power. Look down at your Bibles again and notice the combination of these two themes right away in this psalm. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name. You see that combination right in the first verse. Give thanks to the Lord, call upon the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, call upon the Lord. Verse 2 says, sing praises to Him. And then verse 3 says, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord, verse 4, and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Now, I think this is a really important combination to see. The past mercies of the Lord 
are meant to compel our faith for His power to be revealed again toward His people. Past mercies should compel future faith. Faith. What, what's one signpost that we are living for God's glory? We are praying prayers of faith for God to show His power again. God is not like a father who gives one gift and then is annoyed by requests for another. We might think that way. We, we are instinctively prone to think that way. Like God gives us a big gift and we're like, well, we should just don't ask for anything else. Because we think as if that's, that's the way God is. Well, what? I mean, greedy children. No, obviously we don't ask for things in a self-centered kind of way. But if we're genuinely longing for God to show His glory, it actually honors God's past gift and His power when we ask that that same power be displayed again. Do you see the difference? Our tendency might be to think, well, God has done this mighty thing. We, we, we should just be silent and sit content for a while. We have our cookie in the corner, and that's good. No, that's not the way the Bible speaks. The Bible speaks of allowing the, the past actions of God to frame the scope of our future prayers. Do you understand what I'm saying? That the past actions of God shouldn't limit our prayers. They should define our prayers. If we've seen God move mightily in the past, it might be the case if God really was a limited human father that we ought to be grateful and appreciative and content only for what He has already done and not expect more. But it indicates to God and to the nations that we actually believe He is a limitless Father when we ask Him to display that limitlessness by fresh occasions of power. In other words, what God has just done for us as a church should not limit our future prayers, it should expand them. It should not restrain them it should motivate them. It's not presumptuous to ask the Lord to show His power toward His people again, again and again and again in the Scriptures. He commands them and is even, we might say in human terms, disappointed in them when they fail to let His past actions inform their future prayers or their trust in the face of need. The failure to apply this aspect of glorifying the Lord was the tragic rebellion of the first generation of the Israelites in Egypt. They had seen God's power. They had even been grateful for it. As we read about the song of Miriam in the middle of Exodus, they had been grateful initially at the power of God displayed in saving them. But they failed to move from gratefulness to faith in His power when they saw a fresh opportunity for it. Do you see how that can be the case? You can have a grateful people who then lack faith in God's power as new needs and opportunities arise. They had just come through the Red Sea on dry ground. They get to the other side. They begin to experience hunger, and instantly they begin to grumble and doubt that God can provide for them. God rebukes them. And actually, if you read Psalm 95, he says of that generation in general that he loathed them because they were a generation that continuously doubted God's power, though they had seen his work. 
What's a signpost that we are living for God's glory? We're allowing the past mercies of God to compel future faith. Brothers and sisters, it's the same God that you prayed to in your private lives that provided for us as a church. It's not two different gods. And the same God who can provide financially, is able to provide relationally, spiritually, is able to do other kinds of mighty works. We don't pray to different departments in heaven. Wow, we have a great access and favor with the land and building department, but now we're talking about the marriage department, and I don't have a good relationship. That person is a little stingy. No, no, it's the same God. The same God who has done this work is meant to reveal his power in other works. That's part of the problem, I think, with God's people. They see God work in one way, they face a new situation, and they disconnect that action from this need. They had seen God part the Red Sea. Then they were in the desert and they needed food. And they didn't connect. Surely a God who can part the Red Sea can provide food. They thought this is a new need. What's going to happen? We're going to starve. Let's go back to Egypt. God's people must connect past miracles with future opportunities and need, even if they are in different ways. Call upon his name, the psalmist says. Give thanks to him. Yes, he's done mighty works in the past. What should that compel us to do? It should compel us to ask for him to display his power now. What ought God's people to have done when they first felt that pang of hunger on the other side of the wilderness? Lord, do something miraculous again. Show us your power Again, I believe it was God's intention to give them manna in the wilderness for 40 years because it would always be an illustration of the provision of Jesus Christ. But it would have been much better if they would have just prayed that instead of grumbling against Moses and God having to give it to them anyway in spite of their doubt. It would have been better if they'd been there in that wilderness and said, we're thirsty, Lord, bring water somehow. Bring water to us, and then here it comes out of the rock, a miracle yet again. That's what ought to have happened. What ought to have happened when they got to the promised land and they saw those mighty giants they were so afraid of, they ought to have said with Joshua and Caleb, the Lord who toppled the gods of Egypt can topple these giants too. But what did they do? They doubted his power, and they did not ask him to reveal it again. Brothers and sisters, those who live for God's glory, ask God to show it again. Now, we don't control God. We can't snap right. He's not a genie who grants us wishes if we ask him correctly. No, he is God, and his wisdom is beyond ours. His ways are not our ways. We don't know how he's going to answer requests. But if we are asking things that are genuinely for God's glory and for his kingdom and for the display of his magnificence, It is right for us to ask in faith God-sized prayers that God would display them for his glory in the church. This is what we want to do in this season. Now, we have a wonderful occasion, a wonderful occasion in this next season to ask prayers of faith. We, We should begin, I think, asking for spiritual miracles because we don't want physical provision to distract us from the priority of spiritual zeal and godliness. And hasn't, didn't that happened throughout history, where physical abundance and prosperity is a test that God's people fail even as they pass the test of suffering. 
we want to pray, first of all, that God would continue to grow us towards godliness, that we would be disciples that are living for his glory, that we would be faithful in preaching God's word, that we would not be looking to impress the culture so much as to evangelize the world with the testimony of Jesus Christ. We should be praying that God would keep us faithful and godly in his word and for his glory throughout this season, whatever kind of building he provides for us. We should also be praying that God would continue to display his power practically as we enter this new season. I mean, just this last two weeks, Aaron and I started writing the number of things practically that we could pray for God to do miracles in again. We're actually going to be providing for all of us a list of things. We'll get them to you next week. We're hoping to create a bookmark you can keep somewhere easy. That you can have a list of things that you can be praying for in this extended season. And I would urge you to pray with faith that God would do mighty works among us. You think of things, for example, like the purchase of land, if that should be God's will, or an existing facility, if that becomes the option. We need a project manager. We need an architectural firm. We need a general contractor. We need subcontractors. We need the price of materials to go down. We need the shortage of materials to be somehow reversed in our case. We have... Thing after thing after thing. And under each of those categories, there's countless other options. Lord, give us favor. Give us generosity with somebody who owns land. Lord, give us favor towards someone who knows how to design a building. Give us favor with someone who can organize this whole thing and save us money. Give us favor and do it in a way that shows your glory so that from start to finish, this project can be an evidence of your power. That's just practical things we can pray. And it glorifies God's past mercies to pray for future miracles. It glorifies God's past mercies to pray for future miracles. I think that's a signpost. Are we headed in the right direction? Well, how do we know? We want to live for God's glory, but how do we know? Well, one way we know is if we are praying and having faith in his power. It's possible in this season that we are experiencing financial abundance. We we might experience suffering in other ways, like they did when they crossed the Red Sea and then abruptly were faced without food. I, I don't know what God's purpose is for us in this next season of the church, but I know when we face those moments, this moment is meant to incline us towards faith in his power all along the way. Second signpost. Third signpost I'd like us to look for. Love for his people. Love for his people. I just want you to notice that this psalm, as many of the psalms, I might even say most of the psalms do, they, they celebrate a corporate witness of God. A corporate witness. Did you notice that? They, they talk about God's people as a group when they were few in number. Did you notice that? They were sojourners, plural, in it, wandering from nation. He allowed no one to oppress them. Touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Right? Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. The Lord made his people very fruitful, made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people and so forth. He, he, he goes on right, to describe many ways in which God worked among his people. God is building a people. He's not just 
building individuals. He's building a people. It is always God's purpose to display his power among a people, a community, not just individuals who are mystically connected in some loose confederation of allegiance to God. They're a community. They're a temple. They're a holy temple built together. To be a faithful Christian is to be a church person, a temple stone kind of person. I've said before that the New Testament, as you read about it, makes this even more explicit. To be a faithful Christian is to be a church-shaped Christian, a Christian who fits in to the life of the church. Now, this psalm doesn't emphasize the category of love. It does emphasize God's commandments, which include love. But I thought it would be helpful to point out that what it means for God's people to glorify Him obviously is to worship Him directly, but it also means to love one another, that they would be unified. And this is one of the ways God's people in the past went off of their heading. They went off of their heading. You can think, for example, of the people of Israel who within one generation, I was just reading the book of Judges recently, within one generation of entrance into the promised land, they were slaughtering each other. They were killing each other so much so that one tribe almost got totally annihilated. They were killing each other. You can think, for example, of David and Saul. That in spite of God's mighty acts, instantly there is jealousy and selfish ambition that goes to work amongst these two men. Saul trying to destroy David, jealous of his power and his anointing. You can think of Judah and Israel. Immediately after Solomon builds the temple and they experience God's cloud of glory come down upon it, one generation later, they are divided as a nation. So it would be arrogant of us, I think, to assume that God's abundance will only lead to unity. We're not better than them. And the abundance of physical provision, like we've received, could easily lead to division and arrogance and selfish ambition. You think about just practical things like what stuff gets included in the building and what stuff doesn't down the road. Already, in a wonderful way, since we've gotten this news, I've gotten conversations that we've had. Oh, this would be great. and Wouldn't it be great? Everybody's excited, and I love it, and I'm excited too. But we want to be aware that this ought to be governed by love for one another. Love for others, eagerness to see. Think about even things like where God ultimately provides a permanent location. What if it's closer to somebody else's house than yours? And it's going to be closer to somebody else's house than yours. I mean, the chances are, given the size church that we have, that you're not going to be the one house that's across the street. I would do that if I could. And if you want to move, God bless you. But when we first choose, it might not be your favorite area of the north part of this county where we live. It might not be right where you would love it. Well, I, would, I like this area. In those moments, what ought to shape our hearts towards God's glory? Love for God's people. God's mercy towards his people it's always assumed in the Scripture, should lead them to love those people too. 
that they together would be a testimony honoring to the Lord. Jesus summarized the Old Testament commandments as saying the first commandment is to love the Lord your God, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So one signpost, I think, that we are living for God's glory is that we are loving one another through the process. Look, a a building is worthless if it's just a context for people to be selfishly ambitious and to fight. Now, thankfully, we have a loving, gracious, generous church, so this is not corrective at all. This is just pointing out we want to do so more and more, abound in love more and more, be thrilled at other people's joy, at various aspects of the project, ways they're included in various aspects of the project, refusing to allow abundance to lead in any way towards self-centeredness. What is this? It's just a signpost that, Lord willing, we don't have to track down because it's right on the path of where we're going. What are we trying to do? We're trying to live for God's glory. Praise the Lord, the psalmist says. Live for Him, he sang. Exalt his name. How can we do that? Well, there's signposts. Is there gratefulness in this season? Is there faith in God's power in this season? Is there love for one another in this season? A church building, land, it will be a wonderful occasion for us to see the Lord bless our church. It must not become an occasion. It's good just to keep our hearts in check from the beginning to the end of the project of arrogance or disputing or selfish ambition whether it's the location or a personal preference about the color or a thousand other things, the, the goal should be that we love one another in it. We must ensure that we are glorifying the Lord by humble love toward His people, that we are generous toward one another as the Lord has been generous toward us. Final signpost I want to reference, zeal for godliness. Zeal for godliness. Look down to verse 44. After highlighting all of these verses, he begins telling their story all the way back in verse 6. He begins just listing out aspects of their story. Abraham and then Joseph and Moses. He just goes through then the wilderness, what they did, and so on and so forth. He brought them out with joy, it says. He gave them the lands of the nations. They took possessions of the fruit of the peoples, and then he gives a vat, or we might say, so that. What was the result that all this was supposed to get done? That they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Peter says, you are a people for his own possession, a priesthood of believers to live for the glory of God, for the holiness of God. What what is the mercy of God meant to do? Well, yes, to inspire gratefulness, yes, to inspire faith, It should flow out in love amongst the fellow community of God's people. But what it ought to to result in is a people that are zealous to obey the Lord, zealous for godliness, keeping his statutes, observing his laws, and then the climax, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The works of the Lord practically are not meant to distract us from our call to righteousness any more than their deliverance from Egypt was supposed to be only so that they could be glad they weren't in Egypt. 
If you read the book of Exodus, you want an overall summary of the book of Exodus, there's the part that everybody knows, and there's the part that everybody skips, right? Everybody knows the part where they cross the Red Sea and the plagues and all that, and then they get to about, you know, 18, and they don't read anymore, and they just skip over that all the way to the Psalms because the other stuff's hard too. They skip. The second half of Exodus is basically God creating a way for God to meet with his people, for them to worship him, for him to dwell among them. And then you read Leviticus, and it's a way for a holy God to dwell among a sinful people. And then you read Deuteronomy, and it's about how they're to remember and obey the Lord that has saved them in all of these ways. What's the point? God always saves for the purpose of a godly people that love and follow him. You can see this in the New Testament. Romans 1 through 11 talk about God's mercy displayed in the gospel throughout the nations. Then 12 and following talk about how we can respond by loving God and loving one another and obeying God and living for his glory. You can go to book after book after book in the New Testament. It follows the same progression. The mercy of God is meant to lead to the godliness of God's people. What does this mean for us practically? It means that righteousness and a zeal for godliness ought to be a signpost that we are living for his glory and not some sort of cultural monument. We're not living or building a building or looking at that kind of season in order to be impressive as a sort of cultural organization. We're simply building a spot where we can learn about his word and follow his word. That's all we're doing. But it's his word and following his word that is and will always be the priority. And should the Lord provide us a spot to do that here or there or anywhere, that's the priority. And the spot can't change the goal. And you can see how that would be possible. As God provides physical provision, this happened with the Israelites, they began to forget that the goal of that location was for them to glorify the Lord. It wasn't meant that they could just enjoy the spot. In the same way, I would say, a building that God provides for us, this facility that God's provided for us to use, it is not meant to be a spot where we can go through the motions of religious exercise more comfortably. It's meant to be, in the right sense of the word, a sanctuary for the glory of God. A location in which God's people worship him and hear from his word and seek to follow him. That experience conviction and growth and change and humility and the exaltation of God's gospel. The proclamation of his word. Unashamed and fearless of the attacks of the culture. No, this this is what we're seeking to build. But we need to be careful that we're not more impressed with the context than the goal of that context, which is the godliness of God's people. Living for God's glory is not some kind of super spiritual passion or a mystical feeling. Even less is it a mantra that you do in a church-looking religious facility. It means we will continue to preach the word of the Lord. We will continue to preach our call to holiness and righteousness. So in one sense... One way we can make sure we're glorifying God in this new season is that we don't let this new season distract us from our primary mission. Our primary mission 
is the gospel of Jesus Christ and living worthy of it. It is honoring and glorifying the Lord. We don't put our godliness and growth on hold while we do practical stuff like looking for land. God will provide. We'll look. We'll work hard. We'll seek to use it for his glory. But we're going to keep growing in the word and the admonition of the Lord, living worthy of the gospel. We're going to keep pressing forward as disciples. We're going to keep preaching through books of the Bible. We're going to keep loving each other as God's people and bearing witness to his word. We're going to obey the word of the Lord. That's our primary mission. So in one sense, this new season doesn't actually change anything. It's going to feel a bit new. There'll be new opportunities to pray. But in one sense, what are we trying to do? We're trying to keep his statutes and observe his laws. We're trying to praise the Lord. We are the recipients of God's grace. This season should cause us to be grateful, faith-filled, loving, and godly people. Now, you are that. I know we're not perfect, so it's not like I've made a mistake in saying that, all right? I know we're not, we're not perfect. But if I can just commend you generally, you are this. By the grace of God, and we are growing in this, but we are this. You are a grateful, faith-filled, loving, godly people. It's one of the reasons that it is a joy to pastor here for Aaron and myself. It's a joy to pastor a grateful, faith-filled, godly, loving people. It's a joy to pastor you. It's a joy to be among you. But here we are in this new season. And I think it's important that we not be presumptuous because many times in the history of God's people, new seasons derailed them and they got off of their compass. And we don't want to be arrogant and assume we're better than all of those who failed these kind of tests in the past. In one sense, you might say, that the last two years was a test of adversity. There was a test of adversity, was there not? We had to navigate different locations. Now, obviously, we are wimps compared to our brothers and sisters around the world. But in our experience, it was harder to be faithful at church. There continues to be the temptation to fall away from the discipline of church attendance. It was harder to be faithful these last seasons with different locations and so forth. There was a slight test of adversity. Well, suddenly we come into a test of prosperity. Let us ensure that we learn from those in the past who failed this test and let us keep being what God has allowed us to be. Grateful, faith-filled, loving, godly, living worthy of the gospel that has saved us and the God who continues to show miraculous mercy toward his people. Let's keep his glory as our heading. Let's be looking for these signposts along the way. Let's ensure that this new area, new season, new era doesn't find us lost and wandering in some other strange area of woods. We should be on this path for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this church that by your grace, Lord, is grateful, is faith-filled, is loving, is godly, are seeking to love you with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength. And I pray, Lord, that you would keep our eyes fixed on your kingdom, that this would just be another moment of celebrating the advance of your kingdom through your power. Lord, we ask that you give us 
faith to pray prayers of faith, about spiritual things, about practical things. We want to see more of your miracles, Lord, and even asking you, Lord, Lord, we, we feel presumptuous, but we trust your word and we ask boldly for more miracles to be revealed to us, for more testimonies of your greatness and power. Lord, that the nations around us would be forced to admit God is among them, doing things that only a God could do. Lord, cause us to love each other through the process. Give us godliness throughout the process, Lord. Keep our eyes fixed on your glory. In Jesus' name.